welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. This week, it's been all about Chevron deference in the news. Surely because the Supreme Court just heard oral argument in that Fisherman case, destined to catch and not release the Supreme Court's seminal 1984 administrative law precedent. See what I did there? The podcast Strict Scrutiny and Amicus, as always, put out excellent analyses this week on the whole issue, and they were replete with historical context and even snippets from oral argument, and I urge you to check out those pods. Free advertising for you, Strict Scrutiny and Amicus. Reach out to my people, or me, if you're interested in a more formal arrangement. So what happens to the BIA and immigration more generally if Chevron falls? That is the major question doctrine. See what I did there? Quite frankly, no one knows. The cynics out there believe that the courts will eventually destroy agency deference everywhere else and then accept immigration. But I'm not such a cynic. More importantly, immigration heavyweights Brian Greene and Professor Stephen Yalar wrote a timely piece on all of it for Ayla's Think Immigration publication. Link in the show notes. Check it out. Banger of a week here. Keep your thinking caps on to the end. Our first case is Pineda Maldonado v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on January 24th, 2024. This case is about nexus and cattle thieves. Mr. Pineda Maldonado is an asylum seeker from El Salvador. His claim is as follows. In August 2014, his father was murdered by, quote, cattle thieves, end quote, to whom the father owed a gambling-related financial debt. Mr. Pineda Maldonado began himself receiving telephone threats a year later from the thieves, and they threatened to kill Mr. Pineda Maldonado and his brother unless they paid their father's unpaid debt. Also, it appears that the thieves were worried that Mr. Pineda Maldonado and his brother would try to avenge their father. The same month of those threats, February 2016, the cattle thieves beat up Mr. Pineda Maldonado in the street 
and threatened to kill him if he didn't pay back the debt. Police refused Mr. Pinata Maldonado when he tried to file a report and never investigated. Shortly after that, police themselves detained and beat Mr. Pinata Maldonado as he was leaving a soccer game, asking him whether he was his father's son. When he said that he was, the police beat him even worse. Mr. Pinata Maldonado fled to the United States shortly after he, quote, saw members of the local police meeting with the cattle thieves, end quote. The immigration judge and the BIA denied his asylum claim, but did find Mr. Pinata Maldonado credible. The First Circuit reversed. In what I believe is the first on the podcast, the First Circuit began with Mr. Pinata Maldonado's Convention Against Torture claim, and it reversed it. Seems that the IJ didn't think that the threats were that bad here. But the First Circuit disagreed, and quote, while not all threats may cause torture, threats of imminent death may, end quote. The IJ didn't discuss whether death appeared imminent at all, and that's error. The IJ didn't even refer to the threats as death threats, which they clearly were, imminency aside. The record possibly supports an imminency finding here, where the death threats were close in time, followed by a physical beating. Remember that, because again, imminency is important to equate to torture. Also, and though unsaid, the cattle thieves did have a history of following through with their threats, right? Now, the IJ did separately hold that in totality. Mr. Pineda Maldonado hadn't established that torture in El Salvador was more likely than not to occur in the future. And unlike with asylum or withholding of removal, past torture doesn't result in a presumption that future torture will occur. However, quote, evidence of past torture is relevant to a determination of whether there is a basis for finding that a person seeking cat protection has met the burden to show a likelihood of being subjected to torture in the future, end quote. So messing up a past torture analysis appears to be strong grounds for a remand on cat in the First Circuit. Remanded here. No discussion, by the way, whether the Salvadoran government would consent or acquiesce to the torture. But on the other hand, the record here shows that the Salvadoran government, as represented by police, were directly involved, right? So maybe everyone's satisfied that it was shown. Remember matter of OFAS, everyone, and the connection between even low-level government officials like local police and the government acquiescence or consent prong for cat protection. Already going back for CAT analysis, the First Circuit sent it back for re-adjudication of asylum and withholding of removal, too. And folks, we're only a third of the way into this bad boy. Looks like a lot of this is going to have to do with Nexus. The cattle thieves were, after all, clearly motivated in part by a desire for money. They're cattle thieves. But also, of course, quote, asylum is proper in mixed motive cases, even where one motive would not be the basis for asylum, so long as one of the statutory protected grounds is at least one central reason for the persecution, end quote. But before we get to that nexus actually, throwing me for a loop again, sneaky First Circuit, the court discussed the harm. As with the torture stuff, the First Circuit disagreed with the IJ and the BIA that the death threats, along with the beatings all in a short period of time, and in consideration of what happened to Mr. Pineda Maldonado's father already, didn't rise to the level of past persecution. Or that is to say, the court wasn't convinced that the agency had properly considered this issue. Pretty expected given what they just held with the same facts and past torture, right? 
But indeed, quote, a death threat in the midst of a single act of violence may be enough to establish past persecution, end quote. Footnote quote from another First Circuit case, but you'll probably be seeing that on the pod's social medias soon. Now, the IJ also held that regardless, Mr. Pinata Maldonado's fear of return wasn't well-founded, because his brother remains in El Salvador and is living in a different town and hasn't been harmed himself. Maybe so, although the First Circuit also does say that the brother is living in hiding, so that's not really reasonable and safe relocation, right? But in any event, if Mr. Pineda Maldonado did suffer past persecution, as the First Circuit believes he might have, then it would be DHS that would have the burden to show that relocation is reasonable, not the other way around. So this relocation finding by the IJ tethered to the brother standing alone can't save the analysis by the agency because it didn't apply the correct burdens and presumptions. And so we arrive at nexus and mixed motives, the brunt of this decision it would appear. Mr. Pineda Maldonado argued that all of this was happening to him on account of his membership in his family. And in the First Circuit, quote, the mere fact that a family received threats as a family unit without more does not convert a non-protected criminal motivation into persecution on the basis of family connections, end quote. But that all begs the question, quote, the more elusive question, is the one that this case squarely implicates. What must that more entail? End quote. We know that purely personal disputes probably don't cut it for family-based particular social group claims. But what does in the First Circuit? Well, like so much, it requires a fact-intensive inquiry, said the court. Because it is a, quote, reality that victims of persecution on account of family status may be regularly and perhaps invariably targeted, whether for retribution or otherwise, because of the actions of another member of their family, end quote. It's almost always going to be confusing and all mixed up with non-protected grounds for asylum. That's why Nexus is so tricky. Here, the thieves clearly wanted money. Not only that, there really wasn't evidence that the cattle thieves had a particular animus towards this family. And yet, listen up everyone, NBIA, quote, There is nothing in the record that could explain why the cattle thieves deemed Mr. Pineda Maldonado to be indebted to them apart from their knowledge that he was a member of his father's family, end quote. After all, he didn't have a debt with the thieves. His father did, who they killed. The thieves picked Mr. Pineda Maldonado and not someone else because he was part of his father's family. They targeted the brother too, remember? This counts for nexus. Family was one central reason, among others maybe, and quite frankly, likely. But it also appears sufficient for asylum here. A necessary read for family-based particular social group cases. The court spends many pages analogizing and distinguishing other family-type cases from the First Circuit and other circuits, so that's also a good read if for no other reason than to distinguish or to string cite. To the extent that the BIA and some circuits might have held in some decisions lately that, quote, animus towards a protected group must motivate the persecution for an applicant to be eligible for asylum, end quote, well, quote, we cannot agree, end quote. The First Circuit is citing the precedential decisions out of the 10th and the 6th Circuits, by the way. 
Quote, the asylum statute does not say anything to suggest that animus toward a particular social group is required for an applicant to be eligible for asylum, as it uses the phrase on account of, end quote. The First Circuit does not mention matter of MRMS, episode 188, but it might as well have, and I did. All of it sent back. The First Circuit rarely gives me a short one when it's a win for the non-citizen. But it means congratulations to Kimberly A. Williams, Jeffrey B. Rubin, and Todd C. Pomerleau for a petitioner. And of course I must mention the decision's final footnote. In my opinion, and for some time now, the First Circuit has included ambiguous legal sections in their decisions to skirt the growing circuit split about whether there is a different nexus standard for withholding of removal as compared to asylum. The withholding of removal statute, as we know, only requires, quote, a reason, end quote, while the asylum statute requires that a protected ground be one central reason. Seems different. Well, in the last footnote of this decision, the First Circuit finally came out and said it. Yes, we know this is all going on. We just, quote, need not address the issue here, end quote. Who's going to get to it in the First Circuit first? Eternal podcast glory or shame awaits. And that is Pineta Maldonado v. Garland. Next is Owusu v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on January 24th, 2024. This case is about asylum. Mr. Owusu is from Ghana. As the Sixth Circuit explains it, he suffered three, quote, violent incidents, end quote, from 2012 to 2013 in that country. The first occurred when he was going door-to-door with a crowd to promote the new Patriot Party for an upcoming election. An argument ensued and another NPP supporter shot an opposition supporter named Mohammed in the knee. Other members of that opposition party, the National Democrat Congress, or NDC, vowed to avenge the shooting. Several months later, Mr. Owusu and the man who had shot Mohammed were outside when they were approached by two individuals with guns. They shot Mr. Owusu's colleague and then attacked him with machetes. He died. Police arrested 19 suspects but released them all without charge. Mr. Wusu did not himself, however, report the event. Two years later, two men with machetes drove up to Mr. Wusu and chased him. He was able to escape by hiding, but he heard one of the men say that they'd kill him one day. Mr. Wusu did not report this to police either. He eventually fled to the U.S. and applied for asylum. The immigration judge and the BIA denied it. Seems like everyone believed that all of this actually happened to Mr. Wusu. As relevant here, though, the tribunals didn't believe that the Ghanaian government had anything to do with it, or that the Ghanaian government was unable or unwilling to protect Mr. Wusu as asylum law requires. The Sixth Circuit affirmed the agency. Yes, explained the Sixth Circuit, Mr. Wusu provided an article showing that Ghanaian police had killed a group of individuals, and at least three of those individuals were members of the NPP. Presumably, Mr. Wusu provided and pointed to this evidence to argue that reporting the events would have been futile. But the Sixth Circuit says that the article also shows that the group might have been shooting at the police themselves, or that the police might have been mistaken about who the group was. Either way, it didn't necessarily show an animus towards the NPP. 
nor do the records show that police turned a blind eye to the murder of Mr. Owusu's colleague. Quote, to the extent police should have done more, Mr. Owusu might be partially to blame. He never contacted police about the murder, despite claiming to be an eyewitness. End quote. Finally, Mr. Owusu testified and argued that police in Ghana, quote, don't like, end quote, the NPP supporters, and that it's been like that for a long time. Again, probably to show that reporting to police was futile, and that the government and police are unable or unwilling to protect people, like Mr. Owusu, who are NPP supporters. The problem to the Sixth Circuit, though, was that Mr. Wusu didn't really provide evidence of this, and certainly not enough to overturn the BIA on the deferential standard of review that governs such questions. Flood the record with evidence, everyone, if you can. That's just good legal advice. That was not legal advice. And so, for all of these reasons, Mr. Wusu lost his case. Got a note, though. No expert here, but a Google search shows that the NDC, the persecuting actors, were actually the government of Ghana from at least 2012 to 2016. So really, wasn't this government persecution, or at least persecution by government supporters? Apparently, Mr. Owusu, quote, doesn't allege that his previous assailants were government actors, end quote. Probably wouldn't have convinced the underlying IJ or this panel anyway, but you never know. And if you make the argument, it could get you out of the whole unable or unwilling to protect territory. Which is usually a pretty good territory to be out of. And that is Owusu v. Garland. Moving on to Mencia Mendina v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on January 23rd, 2024. This case is about cancellation of removal. Been a minute, no? And actually, we last discussed this very case on episode 66. I knew it sounded familiar. Looks like the Eighth Circuit previously deemed Mr. Mencia Medina's arguments unexhausted, but the Supreme Court sent it back after the Supreme Court issued Santo Zacharia, whereby a failure to exhaust an argument at the BIA might not be quite the big deal it once was. Probably more complicated than that, but whatever, and all of this is changing as we speak. The Eighth Circuit took the opportunity to just do the case on the merits. Mr. Mencia Medina is from Honduras and entered the United States in 2001 as a child with his mother. He and his mother were ordered removed in absentia when they didn't appear for their hearing. They went to go live with Mr. Mencia Medina's father in New Jersey, but the record shows that both the father and Mr. Mencia Medina's mother abused and neglected him. Fast forward 14 years. Mr. Mencia Medina was charged with sexual misconduct because the mother of his child was underage, but the charge was dismissed. A few months later, he was attacked by the woman's father. Quote, the two men fought, and Mr. Mencia Medina retrieved a samurai sword from his car. End quote. Ah, yes. Now I remember this case. Mr. Mencia Medina never swung the sword, but he was convicted in Minnesota of making threats of violence in violation of Minnesota Statute Section 609.713, Subdivision 1. In 2019, Mr. Mencia Medina moved to reopen that in absentia removal order, issued all those years ago and when he was a child, and then to transfer venue to Minnesota. And wouldn't you know it, the IJ granted the motions. 
In the reopened proceedings, Mr. Mencia Medina conceded that he was removable, but he applied for discretionary special rule cancellation of removal that's available to a child who has been battered or subjected to extreme cruelty by a permanent resident or U.S. citizen parent. That's INA Section 240A-B2, and it's also known as VAWA cancellation. Creative attorney, albeit somewhat rolling the dice. But the IJ granted the application, killing it, counsel. But the BIA reversed on DHS's appeal, finding that Mr. Mencia Medina did not warrant relief as a matter of discretion. Quite the thing to do, but also de novo review of that issue by the BIA, that is, whether the non-citizen warrants relief as a matter of discretion. Remember that when you get an IJ denial on discretion. But yeah, very rough for Mr. Mencia Medina. He was therefore ordered removed yet again. He appealed to the Eighth Circuit. Reviewing it all on the merits this time, the Eighth Circuit affirmed the BIA. First, and unsurprisingly given what had happened, Mr. Mencia Medina argued that the BIA engaged in improper fact-finding to determine that he didn't warrant VAWA cancellation as a matter of discretion. And again, after Santo Zacharia, quote, there is no statutory requirement to exhaust a claim of impermissible fact-finding, end quote. And recall that the BIA can't engage in fact-finding. If the BIA believes that further facts need to be found, it must remand to the IJ. But the BIA is allowed to reweigh facts that have already been found in its de novo discretionary analysis. And that's what the Eighth Circuit said happened here. Mr. Mencia Medina had a hope, though. Seems like the BIA believed that the sword incident caused, quote, great pain, end quote, including fear to the victims. But the IJ had found that no serious bodily injury had occurred and that no one had been harmed with the sword. So that seems like the BIA is making an impermissible factual finding as regards the samurai sword incident and the resulting harm. Not to the Eighth Circuit, though. Quote, the IJ found the petitioner's offense caused no physical harm, but the BIA properly relied on emotional or mental harm arising from the petitioner's conduct. End quote. The victim impact statement that was already a fact in the record supported this as well. Fine line, but walked, said the Eighth. The BIA, quote, acknowledged and considered mitigating factors cited by the IJ, but permissively placed greater weight on evidence that the IJ did not discuss, end quote. A permissible discretionary analysis, as was some other reweighing of facts, said the Eighth Circuit. Mr. Mencia Medina had other arguments, but to be honest, rarely will any other argument be as strong in circumstances like this than was the one just rejected by the Eighth Circuit. Nevertheless, Mr. Mencia Medina did argue that the BIA applied an overly burdensome standard on discretion. Quote, in particular, Mr. Mencia Medina contends that the BIA failed to consider the context of domestic abuse in deciding whether to grant discretionary relief. End quote. Remember, it's a smart attorney. The problem was, said the Eighth Circuit, that the BIA had considered this factor, albeit elsewhere in the decision, and albeit succinctly, it seems. But it was good enough. The Eighth Circuit denied a few other arguments for reasons of appellate review and affirmed the BIA's reweighing of evidence that had previously been found persuasive by the trial court. And that is Mencia Medina v. Garland. Are you tired of answering your own phones? 
or of wasting your valuable time on unqualified consultations? Staffy Live is the only 24-7 live receptionist and intake service specialized on immigration law. Staffy Live specialists are highly empathetic bilingual individuals who know how to deal with adversity, have a background in client care, and are trained to qualify callers by asking the right questions. Staffy Live goes one step ahead in only scheduling qualified consultations on your calendar and then doing follow-ups when needed. Staffy Live is giving a 15-day free trial for any law firm interested with no strings attached. To apply, visit www.getstaffy.com. That's G-E-T-S-T-A-F-I.com. And click on Get Started. Make sure to put in the code free. Links, of course, in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed that break because you're not getting any more. Next up is United States v. Gambino Ruiz, published by the Ninth Circuit on January 24th, 2024. This case is about 8 U.S.C. Section 1326 criminal convictions, illegal reentry into the United States after previously being removed. This is not a criminal podcast, despite its criminal host, and despite what you've heard, and the amount of criminal concepts that I routinely discuss. And after the Supreme Court's decision in the United States v. Palomar Santiago, episode 57, which was directly addressed at the Ninth Circuit, challenging Section 1326 convictions has become more difficult for non-citizens everywhere, and especially in the Ninth Circuit. So I don't do these cases often. Mr. Gambino Ruiz did not win his case, but interesting and very important things were discussed along the way that, quite frankly, has me shook. When someone enters the United States unlawfully after previously being removed, they can be convicted criminally. But one of the ways to avoid a conviction is to collaterally attack the underlying removal order, to argue that that removal order was improper. So it's improper for a criminal conviction to occur that relies on the existence of that removal order. It's more complicated than that, but that's what's important and interesting for podcast purposes this week. And interesting it is. See, Mr. Gambino Ruiz is from Mexico, and he was caught inside the U.S. shortly after entering the country unlawfully in March of 2013. He was charged as inadmissible under INA Section 212A7AII, quote, for lacking a valid entry document at the time of his application for admission, end quote. He was expeditiously removed to Mexico shortly thereafter. Same thing happened two months later. Then he tried to re-enter in September 2020, and that's when criminal proceedings were begun. And that's where he challenged the 2013 expedited removal order. Obviously, right, long-term podcast listeners? He argued that the government could not now charge him as a non-citizen previously removed, because his expedited removal order in 2013 was invalid under the Ninth Circuit's Torres v. Barr decision, the en banc decision discussed on episode 22. Seems right to me. After all, as I read Torres at the time, the full Ninth Circuit said that you can't charge a non-citizen as inadmissible under INA Section 212A7AII when they're physically in the United States. At that point, they're not applicants for admission anymore. Instead, they've entered without inspection and admission or parole. That makes them inadmissible under INA Section 212A6AI, and they can still be removed. But statutes matter. And again, that was the en banc Ninth Circuit. 
Again, while the criminal stuff is more complicated than all that, it seems that everyone's assuming that if this argument were to prevail, Mr. Gambino Ruiz wouldn't be able to be convicted under Section 1326. Mr. Gambino Ruiz made a bunch of other challenges too, but we're only going to focus on the removal order because this episode is long enough. And how is that argument not right? How does Torres not govern and mean that that removal order, albeit pre-Torres, was incorrect? In fact, the expedited removal statute used way back when in 2013, INA Section 235b1, would appear to require an inadmissibility finding under Section 212a7, and wouldn't permit expedited removal based on an INA Section 212a6ai EUE inadmissibility charge alone. So how was Mr. Gambino Ruiz incorrect? The Ninth Circuit started off by explaining that the expedited removal statute used again in 2013 applies to non-citizens, quote, who are arriving in the United States, end quote, what we call arriving aliens under immigration law. As a matter of inadmissibility charge, that charge almost always travels under INA Section 212A7AII. Think non-citizens at the border asking to be let in and placed in removal proceedings to, say, litigate their asylum claims. Not only that, but under 8 CFR section 1001.1Q, the government has defined, quote, the term arriving alien narrowly to mean an applicant for admission coming or attempting to come into the United States at a port of entry, end quote. So under the regulations, an arriving alien is an applicant for admission caught at a port of entry. It is essentially describing, again, INA Section 212A7AII in admissibility and would seem to exclude non-citizens already in the United States, the EWEs at Section 212A6A, because they've already arrived, and they're not asking for admission anyway. And that's what Mr. Gambino Ruiz was in 2013 when he was ordered removed and physically removed. But the expedited removal statute has a gaping caveat. To paraphrase, expedited removal can also apply to EWIs caught inside the United States where the non-citizen cannot, quote, affirmatively show to the satisfaction of an immigration officer that the non-citizen has been physically present in the United States continuously for the two-year period immediately prior to the date of the determination of inadmissibility, end quote. Quite the amorphous requirement, no? This is a confusing case, and although this is confusing and not solely on the prior administration, the prior administration did exercise this authority to the maximum extent possible, applying this requirement upon non-citizens to avoid expedited removal very broadly and to non-citizens caught within a 100 miles of the border, which is most of the United States territory where people actually live, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, this prong of expedited removal definitely applied to Mr. Gambino Ruiz in 2013. Fine. He was subject to expedited removal. But again, remember, expedited removal needs to still travel under an inadmissibility provision. And under the much later published Torres decision, it doesn't seem like INA Section 212A7AII would be the proper ground of inadmissibility. True, that statute applies to non-citizens who aren't in possession of valid immigration documents. And true, that does describe what Mr. Gambino Ruiz was in 2013. 
but the statute limits the inadmissibility application to, quote, the time of application for admission, end quote, which I and many others read Torres as holding could only happen outside the United States when the non-citizen is asking to come in, not when the non-citizen is already physically here. I was wrong. Well, I mean, quote, at first blush, the INA appears to support Mr. Gambino Ruiz's position, end quote, always a good thing for one's position. Plus, the INA defines, quote, admission as the lawful entry of the non-citizen into the United States after inspection and authorization by an immigration officer, end quote. So if you've already entered under the INA, you're not applying for admission. But this panel expanded its analysis to, quote, other salient provisions of the INA, end quote. For example, the expedited removal statute that we've been talking about indicates that Mr. Gambino Ruiz was to be treated as the, quote, functual equivalent of an arriving alien, end quote. And that means to the Ninth Circuit that at some point, he was an applicant for admission. Okay, I'm not convinced, not gonna lie. And what about Torres? In that case, the Enbank Ninth Circuit said that, quote, inadmissibility must be measured at the point in time that an immigrant actually submits an application for entry into the United States, end quote. Meaning that in that case, Ms. Torres, who was in the United States, couldn't be deemed inadmissible under INA Section 212A7. Well, explained the panel, Torres was unique because it involved someone in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, or the CNMI. And the CNMI, a U.S. territory now, if I'm not mistaken, has a whole set of unique rules that we discussed on the podcast in a series of Ninth Circuit cases in 2021 and 2022. Ms. Torres entered the CNMI before the INA even applied to it, and was found in the CNMI many, many years later, after immigration law applied to it. Then Bank Ninth Circuit held that for Ms. Torres, quote, the time of application for admission is the time when a non-citizen seeks permission to physically enter the United States territory, regardless of whether the non-citizen is seeking entry from outside the country or inside the country at a port of entry, end quote. Again, sounded sweeping to me. But to the Ninth Circuit, it was unique because Ms. Torres was in the CNMI before U.S. immigration law even applied and then remained there. She never crossed a U.S. border at least where U.S. immigration law applied. She was already in there when the law changed for U.S. immigration law to govern. So in effect then to this panel, Torres stands for the crazy unique set of circumstances and applies only when someone enters a U.S. territory before U.S. immigration law applies to that territory and then remains there after U.S. immigration law starts to apply. And in those circumstances, the non-citizen can't later be deemed inadmissible under INA Section 212A7. Call me cynical, but that seems like a wildly unlikely thing to ever happen again or to demand en banc review by the Ninth Circuit. But under that reading of Torres, and again, notwithstanding the statutory definition of admission and DHS's regulation on arriving aliens, Mr. Gambino Ruiz, quote, stands in an entirely different position, end quote. He crossed the U.S. border when U.S. immigration law applied, and when Mr. Gambino Ruiz admitted to Border Patrol agents shortly after his arrival in 2013 that he lacked valid entry documents at the time he crossed into the United States, he admitted his inadmissibility under Section 212A7. End quote. If you, like me, are a bit confused, this panel also made known that it does not like the government's long-standing regulatory definition of an arriving alien, thinks it's too narrow. 
Towards the end of the decision, the panel indicates that Torres might also apply to someone even if, like Mr. Gambino Ruiz, but if he had been in the U.S. for a long time when caught in 2013. But that it doesn't apply to Mr. Gambino Ruiz, who was caught shortly after entering the U.S. in 2013. Where that line is drawn is completely unclear to me based on this decision. Rejecting a variety of criminal law-specific arguments, the Ninth Circuit affirmed Mr. Gambino Ruiz's conviction. I am not a judge, and I am certainly not on the Ninth Circuit, and I respect the judges greatly. Nor am I confident that my reading of Torres is the correct one. But my goodness, I don't see how an en banc challenge isn't at least attempted here. And that is United States v. Gambino Ruiz. Which means we end with Lodge v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on January 26, 2024. This case is about derivative citizenship. Never easy, particularly as this, like many, involves laws that no longer actually govern citizenship law. But they did in 1979 when Mr. Lodge was born in Jamaica and when his father naturalized in 1989. His mother never became a U.S. citizen and his parents were never married. Both of their names appear on his birth certificate. Mr. Lodge's mother abandoned him when he was a child and moved to London. His father became a sole guardian and did everything for him. Mr. Lodge's father brought him to the United States in 1992, wherein Mr. Lodge was admitted as a lawful permanent resident. So he would have been about 13 years old. Many years later, Mr. Lodge was convicted of crimes that would and did make him removable, unless he's actually a U.S. citizen, as he claims he was from the start, or at least from when his father naturalized. Mr. Lodge could have naturalized himself along the way, but he never did. And the thing is, if this story was reversed, he would have had a shot at being a U.S. citizen. If it had been his father that abandoned him, and his mother who cared for him and then naturalized, he'd have a chance at U.S. citizenship. That's the former derivative citizenship framework that governed until 2001, former INA Section 321A. What's more, under the new 2001 law, Mr. Lodge would be a citizen, I believe. This distinction between fathers and mothers was largely, if not entirely, abolished. So how is the old framework that treated derivative citizenship different depending on the sex of the parent possibly constitutional under the Equal Protection Guarantee of the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution? That's always the question in these cases, and it's always found constitutional to my knowledge. And it didn't win the day here. Because first, like any good court, the Eleventh Circuit addressed standing. Does Mr. Lodge have it? Can he even bring this lawsuit? After all, it is not he who is possibly being discriminated against on the basis of sex, it's his father. And his father's not suing. Well, while a quote litigant ordinarily may not assert the rights of third parties, a petitioner may have third parties standing to challenge a sex classification in a statute governing derivative citizenship to vindicate his father's right to the equal protection of the laws, end quote. Legalese for saying that Mr. Lodge can fight for his father's right. This combined with the fact that Mr. Lodge certainly suffered an injury as a result of the possible discrimination against his father almost gave Mr. Lodge standing to sue. Almost. 
The problem was to the 11th Circuit that the injury Mr. Lodge had suffered of not being a citizen wasn't traceable to any potential sex discrimination. And traceability is another requirement of federal court standing. Even if the statute was sex-neutral, the 11th Circuit reasoned, Mr. Lodge wouldn't win. Let me explain. The statute at issue, quote, provided a pathway to derivative citizenship for a child born abroad to non-citizen parents upon the naturalization of the mother if the child was born out of wedlock and the paternity of the child has not been established by legitimation, end quote. Therefore, a sex-neutral version of that statute would still require that the parentage of one parent not be known or established by legitimation. In Mr. Lodge's case, though, the parentage of his mother was established, as was his father, obviously. So Mr. Lodge couldn't benefit either way under a sex-neutral hypothetical former Section 321A. Both of his parents, who never married, were known. Really, former INA Section 321A is a crazy statute from a bygone age with bygone assumptions about mothers and fathers, which is why it became bygone in 2001. But the statute that governs citizenship is always the statute in effect at the time when claimed citizenship was derived, and here, that was all pre-2001. Mr. Lodge, who is pro se, by the way, retorted that the 11th Circuit's hypothetical gender-neutral statute isn't a good reference point because it doesn't make sense, because mothers are always known. They're the ones who birthed the child. The 11th Circuit disagreed, quoting the Supreme Court to recognize that, quote, establishing maternity is seldom, not never, difficult, end quote. Emphasis by the court. It's possible that maternity wouldn't always be known, and therefore the 11th Circuit's sex-neutral hypothetical isn't ridiculous, making it a proper basis to determine standing, and meaning that Mr. Lodge can't bring his sex-based equal protection claim. The wonders of legal reasoning. And it means that Mr. Lodge lost his case. Here's this nugget to end the episode, though. For all you federal court litigators, here's this, quote, The risk of removal is sufficient to create an actual or imminent injury under Article 3, end quote, for federal court standing purposes. You still need to establish the other standing requirements of traceability and redressability in addition to concrete injury, and the former, traceability, is what tanked Mr. Lodge here. But nevertheless, this quote about injury seems like one worth remembering, and might be applicable well beyond the derivative citizenship context. And that is Lodge v. U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. 
And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.